This episode of American Hauntings Podcast is brought to you by Best Western Premier Hotel in Alton, Illinois. The Best Western Premier is the only full-service, award-winning hotel in Alton that can accommodate business travelers, long-term stay guests, leisure travels, business meetings, conventions, wedding receptions, and conferences like the Haunted America Conference. Accommodations include a pool, high-speed internet, restaurant, and bar, and it's located just 25 minutes from downtown St. Louis and Bush Stadium. Book your room today at bwpremieralton.com. That's B-W-P-R-E-M-I-E-R. A-L-T-O-N.com. Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today... We are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 to start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest in the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, including the town of Villisca, Iowa. So put away the axe, lock up the oil lamps, and bolt the doors, and get ready for the next part of Murdered in Their Beds. On the morning of June 10th, 1912, Mary Peckham rose from her bed around 4 a.m. It was laundry day. In addition to her usual chores, she reserved every Monday morning as the day of the week to wash and dry her and her husband Elmer's clothing. Her children were grown and on their own, so she didn't have as much work to do as she'd once had. Mary heated the water, had breakfast, and went outside just after 5 a.m. Elmer had already left for his job at the town cemetery. Mary's work would take her in and out of the house several times over the course of the next two hours. She went about her tasks, wringing water from the wash and hanging the wet garments on the line that stretched across her backyard. As she worked, she had a clear view of the Moore house next door, but thought little about how quiet the place was until she was nearly finished with the wash and saw that the clock in her kitchen now read 7 a.m. Mary and Elmer had been neighbors of the Moors for nearly 10 years. She thought the world of Sarah, as almost everyone else did. Mary was especially fond of the four children. She'd last seen the family the previous evening as they were leaving for church. This morning, though, there was something strange about the Moore house. She later called it an odd stillness. No one was outside, no one was moving. The house was dark and silent. In the barn, the livestock were getting restless. There were cows that needed to be milked. Worrying that the Moors might be ill, Mary tried to check on them. She knocked on the door, but no one answered. It was eerily quiet inside. She waited a few moments and then knocked again, but nothing moved. She tried to open the door, but it was locked from the inside. Mary went home, but she was troubled. She knew that JB's father, who lived on a farm south of town, was in poor health 
Perhaps he'd gotten sick or, worse yet, died during the night, and the Moores had been called there. She decided to let the Moors' chickens out, knowing that Sarah wouldn't mind. She went home, but the more she thought about the silent house next door, the more she worried. When Mary finally couldn't stand it anymore, she telephoned JB's brother, Ross. His wife, Jessie, answered the call. Ross had already left for work at the drugstore he managed. Mary explained the reason for the call, and so Jesse called Ross. He then called his brother's farm implement store and spoke to JB's manager, Ed Seeley. Ed said he hadn't seen JB that day, but offered to call out to the farm of Ross and JB's father to see if he was there. Ross couldn't call direct. At the time, there were two phone companies in town, Mutual and Bell. Ross's drugstore was on the Mutual system, but his parents had a Bell line and you couldn't call one another. But JB, like most other businesses in town, had both lines installed at the store. Ed called the farm, but learned that JB hadn't been there. Ed had his own concerns about where JB was that morning. He was supposed to make sales calls on local farmers that day, and he couldn't leave until JB arrived with the horse and buggy they used for such trips. He was already late in getting started. He'd had his eye on the clock when Ross had called. Ed decided to walk over to the Moore house to see what was going on for himself. He met Mary Peckham in the yard and after talking with her for a moment, went into the barn and fed the horses. He agreed with Mary that the Moors didn't seem to be around but had no idea where they might have gone or even what he should do about it. Mary asked if he would milk the cows and he told her he'd better not take the time. He was needed back at the store, but he would send a man named Carl who worked at the store to take care of it. Carl usually did the milking for the Moors whenever JB was out of town. Ed returned to the store still planning to make his sales calls that morning. Ross Moore was bothered by Mary's call. There was something not quite right about it. After worrying for a while, he left the drugstore and went to JB's house. When he arrived, he was also bothered by the mysterious stillness of the house. Mary hurried out to greet him. She was quite flustered by this time. She tried to wake the Moore several more times, but there was still no answer. Ross tried the door himself, and then peered into the downstairs bedroom window. It was too dark to see anything inside because the curtains were drawn. He rapped hard on the glass, but there was no answer. He returned to the door, banging on it this time, shouting for his brother and sister-in-law, but there was still no answer. So finally, Ross produced his own set of keys and looked through the ring until he found one that opened the front door. With Mary behind him, Ross ventured into the house alone. The downstairs, very clean and neat, as Sarah always kept it, had just three main rooms. The front door opened into the parlor, and adjoining this room was Catherine's small downstairs bedroom. Another doorway from the parlor led into the kitchen, which included a pantry and a side porch. There was a doorway in the kitchen that opened to the narrow stairs that led up to the second floor. Mary later spoke of an odd stillness about the house, but to Ross, the heavy silence was ominous. He knew that something was wrong, but he didn't know just how awful it was quite yet. Ross looked around, finding no one in the kitchen. He called out, but there was no answer. A few steps away was the door to the downstairs bedroom and Ross walked over and pushed open the door. The window shades were closed, but even in the murky darkness, he could see that the top sheet had been pulled over two figures on the bed. The sheet was covered with dark stains. Ross saw a small hand dangling limply from beneath the edge of the sheet. 
The room, stink of copper and death. Ross frantically backed out of the bedroom, ran to the porch and told Mary it was bad. Call the police, call Marshall Horton, anyone, everyone in this house was dead. Mary called JB's store and begged Ed Seeley to find Hank Horton, the town's law enforcement officer. Ed ran to find him. Carl from JB's store was just arriving to milk the cows when Ross sank down onto the edge of the front porch. His face was pale and his hands were shaking. When he looked up and saw Carl, he shook his head and told him not to worry about the cows. Something terrible has happened here, he said. Ed Seeley and Hank Horton arrived a few moments later. They went to the house and Seeley only glanced into the front bedroom before he hurried back outside. He wanted no part of the carnage in the house. He later recalled, I was scared there, I admit it. Hank, I'll get out of here. Those were the words I used. I remember them very well. At the same time that Ed fled from the house, Harry, another of JB's brothers, also arrived. News was spreading fast. Ross tried to stop him from going inside, but Harry pushed past him, only to be ordered back out by Hank Horton. The others waited on the porch while Hank searched the rest of the house himself. Hank went back into the bedroom. It was dark and filled with gloom. He struck a match and approached the bed, looking down at the two still forms covered with the bloody bedsheet. Hank had never dealt with a murder before. Such things just didn't happen in towns like Villisca. When his match went out, Hank hurried to the window and pulled aside some clothing that had been draped over it to keep out the light. When he did, he spotted the ax that was leaning against the bedroom wall. He hurried out of the room and went into the kitchen. He took a quick glance around the room and then turned to the narrow stairs that led to the second floor. He lit another match as he climbed the creaking stairs. It was darker in the stairwell than it had been in the parlor bedroom. As he reached the second floor, he looked through the railing and could see a bed in the dim light. There were tangled forms on the bed and dark splashes that he feared could only be blood. He stepped over to the window and raised the shade, his stomach clenching as he saw the bodies of JB and Sarah Moore, their heads smashed into the pillows. Blood was spattered on the walls and the ceiling. There were deep gashes in the plaster ceiling. They were later determined to have come from the backswing of an ax. As Hank started to walk toward the back bedroom, his foot bumped something on the floor at the end of the bed. It was an oil lamp. Its glass chimney had been removed and placed to the side. Hank walked into the south bedroom. He raised the shade and looked at the three beds in the room. Two small forms were lying on one bed and the other two beds also covered with sheets with the bodies of two more children. Blood was everywhere. Everyone in the house had been murdered in their beds. Their heads had been crushed with the blunt side of an ax. One by one, they had been slaughtered by a madman. Hank left the house shaken and upset. The 51-year-old farmer turned carpenter had been born and raised in Villisca. Looking to earn some extra money, he'd taken on a job for the city as a night watchman. Hank, along with a few other men, walked the streets at night, rattling doorknobs and locking up drunks so they could sleep it off. Then in 1911, the city marshal position had opened up. Hank applied and easily won the job. It didn't come with any training. A city marshal of a little town was just supposed to keep the peace. He didn't need any expertise in performing criminal investigations. Serious crimes just didn't happen here. He made sure doors were locked in the business district at night, broke up fights and ran undesirables out of town. He was a tough man, good with his fists when he needed to be, and well-liked by anyone in town that he didn't need to lock up. 
and on the morning of June 10, 1912, he knew he was in way over his head. He told the few people standing outside not to let anyone into the house and then went downtown looking for Dr. J. Clark Cooper, a local physician and surgeon. When Hank found him, the 39-year-old University of Iowa graduate was startled when the marshal demanded he accompany him to a murder scene. Like Hank Horton, Dr. Cooper had no experience with murder. Such things just didn't happen in the small towns of the Midwest in those days. While Hank was looking for Dr. Cooper, word spread of the murders throughout the community. The Moore family heard about it first, but the party telephone lines in town made sure that everyone had the news. Another medical doctor, E.C. Howe, and Reverend Ewing had both been called and arrived at the house before Hank returned with Dr. Cooper. Mary Peckham was making telephone calls, as was Jesse Moore, and probably everyone they told reported it to someone else. The telephone operators heard all the details and they passed along the news to others they thought should know. Frank Jones was at the construction site of the new First National Bank building that was going up on the Villisca Town Square when he heard the news. He hurried over to the house but was not allowed inside. He shook Rossmore's hand and tried to offer some comfort. He stood around for a few minutes and then went to town hall. As an elected state official and former city councilman, he wanted to do what he could to make sure the investigation ran smoothly. He was on hand while Hank Horton made telephone calls to Montgomery County Sheriff Orrin Jackson, County Attorney William Ratcliffe's office, and to a private detective who might be able to help with the case. People were stunned. The Moors were a large and popular family with a wide circle of friends, customers, acquaintances, and relatives. People from all over the county either knew JB or Sarah or one of their family members. If they didn't know him, then just the rumor of a mass murder being discovered in Villisca was enough to make people drop what they were doing and head into town. They descended on JB and Sarah's house. They were filled with a mixture of shock and curiosity that morning. Terror would come later that night. Hank Horton, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Howe, Dr. F.S. Williams, who had been brought to the scene that morning by Ed Seeley, and Reverend Ewing were the first to go through the house that morning. Each later testified at the inquest. Dr. A.L. Lindquist, the county coroner, lived in the nearby town of Stanton, and he arrived at the scene around 9 a.m. The group entered the house. They would have completely contaminated the crime scene if things like that mattered in 1912. As it was, they wouldn't be the last to traipse through the house that day. They entered the downstairs bedroom first. They turned back the sheet that covered the two bodies on the bed. The faces of the two girls were smashed and unrecognizable, but by now, everyone knew who they were. The bed was located in the corner of the room. Ina Stillinger was closest to the wall. She was lying on her back, her nightgown undisturbed. The investigators believed that she was killed instantly by a blow from the flat edge of the ax and then, like the others, was struck in the head several times after she was dead. A gray coat belonging to a little boy, possibly taken from the closet in the room, covered her face. Lena Stillinger's body was on the side of the bed closest to where her killer stood. She was found with her nightgown pushed up and no undergarments on. Her body was drawn into an odd position, possibly positioned that way by the killer. Dr. Williams noted that she was lying on her right side, her leg protruding sideways from the bed and her right hand and arm shoved up under a pillow. He believed that she had been turned that way after her death because blood had already seeped through the pillow and onto the bed before her arm had been placed there. There was also a smear of blood on the inside of her right knee, suggesting that someone had perhaps turned the body after she'd been killed. 
Their white dresses lay at the foot of the bed. Some underclothing and other garments lay on the floor. The doctors all agreed that the girls had not been raped, nor had anyone else in the house. But the position of Lena's body and the removal of her underwear led to speculation that some sort of act of what the doctors called sexual perversion had taken place. Technically, the faces of the two girls were too badly beaten to be recognized, but Bibles on the nightstand had their names on them. Besides that, almost everyone that had been at the church that night before knew that the Stillinger girls had gone home with the Moors after the program was over. News had already spread around town that the girls were the two extra victims in the house. Sadly, Sarah Stillinger had called the Moore home early that morning, wondering when her daughters would be coming home, but no one had answered. When she tried to place the call again later that morning, the telephone operator told her, everyone in that house is dead. This offhand remark was how Mrs. Stillinger learned that her daughters had been murdered. Lena and Ina had seven brothers and sisters. Mrs. Stillinger was pregnant at the time of the murders. The shocking deaths of the two girls caused Sarah to miscarry. She gave birth to a stillborn son, compounding the tragedy of June 1912. Dr. Cooper spoke later about the white dresses, the blood-stained sheets, the axe leaning against the wall, and the battered faces of the two little girls, but he also admitted that he was not as observant as he should have been. He often spoke later of seeing Lena's hand dangling out from under the sheet and the ruined features of the girls. He admitted that these things shook him to the point that he was, quote, dazed and merely did what I had to do. He followed Hank Horton upstairs sickened by the deaths. He counted six more bodies, but failed to examine them closely. The only thing he did note was that JB seemed to have been struck more times than the others. He'd been hit over and over again, and with such ferocity that marks had been cut into the ceiling by the backswing of the ax. Dr. Williams later recounted that he discovered JB on the south side of the bed, his head facing west. He was on his back, his left hand on his chest, and his face obliterated by blows from the axe. Sarah was also on her back, her head and face also destroyed by the murder weapon. After examining Sarah and JB, Dr. Williams went into the south bedroom. It was there that he found the slaughtered children. In his report, he noted, quote, the tops of their heads were broken and crushed in, and it looked as if their brains had been chopped out by some instrument. The children were all found in their beds, killed as they slept. Their bodies had been covered with sheets. They hadn't been moved. The most detailed investigation of the scene was performed later that day by Dr. Linquist, the county coroner, but even his examination would have been less than adequate today. It would be easy for us to say that the murders were never solved because of mismanagement by local law officers or because of carelessness on the part of the investigators, but this really is not the case. In 1912, such a crime would have been difficult to solve no matter where it occurred. Fingerprinting was a new idea. DNA would be unimaginable for decades to come, and crime scene photographs were rarely taken. A local druggist whose hobby was photography rushed to the scene to take pictures for the police. One of the doctors made him leave. It was too ghoulish, he said. Investigators in towns like Villisca, Iowa, simply didn't see these kinds of crimes in 1912. Even so, the men who were there did make some notes of what they found that morning. If they hadn't, all the clues would have been completely lost. The evidence in the house was soon destroyed by both the curiosity seekers that came to the scene and sadly, the investigators themselves. Before that happened though, they put together a list of clues, which at the time made little sense. In fact, they made the mystery even more complex. 
All anyone knew for certain was that all eight people in the Moore house had been bludgeoned to death in their sleep at some point after midnight. The murder weapon was presumed to be the bloody axe that had been left behind in the downstairs bedroom. The axe belonged to J.B. Moore. It was smeared with blood and it looked like the killer had made an effort to wipe it off. A kerosene lamp was found sitting on the floor at the foot of J.B. and Sarah's bed. The glass chimney had been removed and placed under the dresser. The wick had been turned down almost all the way. Another lamp with its chimney also removed was found at the foot of the bed where the Stillinger girls had been sleeping. The ceilings in the upstairs bedroom had gouge marks in them that had been made by the upswing of the axe. This implied that the killer had used a lot of force when striking his victims. This seems as though it would have made a lot of noise, and yet, bizarrely, no one in the house had awakened during the murders. In each case, the faces of the victims were covered with bedsheets or clothing after they'd been killed. The killer didn't leave the house after the murders. He, or someone else, did a few odd things in the house before he fled. The bodies of the victims had been covered, but all in the mirrors in the house had been covered too. Two of the windows that didn't have curtains on them were covered with clothing from the closet. A pan of bloody water was found in the kitchen, possibly where the killer had attempted to wash up. Next to it was a plate of food that had been prepared, but had not been eaten. There was also a slab of bacon weighing about two pounds and wrapped in a dish towel lying in the kitchen. Another slab just like it was still in the icebox. Dr. Lindquist noted that one of Sarah's shoes had been moved after the murder. The shoe, he said, was on JB's side of the bed. Blood was inside of it and it was found on its side with blood beneath it. He believed that after JB's head had been crushed, blood flowed from the pillow into the shoe and on the floor around it. He also found a magazine on the floor of the downstairs bedroom with what he thought was a heel print on it. Before the killer, or anyone else that was there, left the house, he locked all the doors. This was something not usually done in Villisca at the time, but it made certain that there would be a delay before the bodies were discovered. The investigators had evidence, but no fingerprints to match anything and no technology by which they could analyze hair and blood samples or any kind of trace evidence. There was little to go on. But as they would soon find out, people wanted results. of the murders, Hank Horton traveled back and forth from the Moore house to his office several times. Besides trying to make sense of what had happened and figuring out what he needed to do about it, he spent quite a lot of time placing telephone calls and conferring with Frank Jones. He contacted the county sheriff who recommended a private detective named Thomas O'Leary employed by the Kirk Agency. O'Leary agreed to come and was expected in Villisca later that night or the next morning. Horton also asked about bringing in bloodhounds, a common police technique at the time, but hesitated to authorize it because he was worried there'd be no money to cover the cost. Frank Jones told him to bring in the dogs. He'd guarantee the payment if necessary. Sheriff Jackson arrived at the scene later that morning. Unfortunately, he had as little experience with murders as Hank Horton had. After serving a term as deputy, he'd been elected sheriff, but his daily duties consisted mostly of serving papers and tending the jail, not tracking down killers but they were the only lawmen Velisca had. 
Thomas O'Leary was an experienced investigator, but he wouldn't arrive for many hours. So on the morning of June 10th, Horton and Jackson suddenly found themselves in charge of dealing with a crime of the like neither of them had ever seen before. Making matters worse, the state of Iowa couldn't be counted on for help, at least in the short term. The state police force didn't exist yet. The attorney general was the top law enforcement official in the state, but his staff didn't include any investigators. When the state needed detectives, they got them from the same place everyone else did. They hired private agencies. The leading detective agencies at the time were Pinkerton, Burns, and Kirk. There were also many smaller agencies in large cities and most medium-sized ones. The detectives worked for wages and reward money. Some waited for calls while others took it upon themselves to work a case hoping they might be hired or rewarded for the information they uncovered. Detectives of this sort were in great demand and until state and local governments began training their own investigators, they were the closest thing to experts anyone had when it came to investigating crime scenes. Detectives, especially those from the major agencies, were given a great amount of respect by both the public and by police officers, but the quality of their skills varied wildly. Some of them were good, some bad, and many of them were downright corrupt. It would be the Velisca murders that would finally push the state of Iowa to put together a state-operated criminal investigative agency. Private detectives began arriving in Velisca within hours of the murders, and dozens more blew into town as weeks passed and the murders remained unsolved. Some of them were asked to come, most were not, but all of them came with the hope of solving the crime. The good detectives merely wanted justice to be done, while others hoped for financial gain or simply the fame that would come with solving the mystery. After making the call to Detective O'Leary in a plea for bloodhounds, Hank returned to the Moore house and was dismayed to see that the scene was overrun with onlookers. Hank had ordered the town's night watchman to keep everyone out who had no business in the house, but he hadn't done it. With what looked to be a terrible situation on his hands, Hank quickly called in the Velisca unit of the Iowa National Guard. By noon, the scene was roped off and an organized effort was made to control who got in and who got out. But by then, the damage was already done. No one knows how many people were in the house that morning, or worse, how many took souvenirs with them. Hank Horton later estimated that perhaps 20 people went through the house, but other estimates, likely much more accurate ones, numbered the curiosity seekers at 100 or more. Even if they didn't steal anything, they undoubtedly touched objects they shouldn't have, picking them up and putting them down somewhere else. Even after the National Guard enclosed the yard with ropes and posted soldiers every few feet, people still managed to get inside. Jesse Moore was allowed into the house to get photographs of J.B., Sarah, and the children for the newspapers. Doctors and undertakers and their guests walked in and out. The guards knew that only authorized people were to be allowed in the house, but just who was authorized and who wasn't remained open to debate. This was likely how a shady character named W.B. Burt McCall got into the house. McCall had a reputation as a drinker, a gambler, and a womanizer. He operated a pool hall in town and an automobile livery service. His wife was from a farm family who lived near Missouri Valley in the west central part of the state. When things started to go bad for him locally a couple of years after the murders, he returned to that area to farm. But in June 1912, he was still trying to make a living in Villisca. McCall had hoped to go into a partnership with Albert Jones selling automobiles. Despite his father's objections, Albert had befriended the man and often hired him to drive him out into the country. He loved the idea of being chauffeured around town in an automobile when most people at the time didn't have one. 
McCall spent the evening of June 9th, as he usually did, playing cards at the Knights of Pythias building in downtown Villisca. It was the one place in town where men could get together, drink whiskey, and play poker. Among the regulars that night was Captain C.J. Casey, commander of the local National Guard unit. On Monday morning, McCall and Albert Jones left town together, although where they went and what they were doing remains unknown today. What is known is that they traveled north and were told about the murders from some farmers around 9 a.m. They hurried back to Villisca and went immediately to the Moore house. Albert talked to a few people and stayed out in the street, but McCall was determined to get inside. He was turned away at first, but returned later in the day and tried to talk his way in. After a scuffle with one of the soldiers, he appealed to his pal, Captain Casey, who allowed him to go inside and take a look around. A few months later, at his pool hall, McCall displayed a chunk of bone with flesh still clinging to it. He claimed it was a piece of J.B. Moore's skull. Was it? Well, who knows? If it was, he left it behind when the pool hall closed down. A later owner of the building found it and, not knowing what it was, threw it away. But McCall wasn't the only one obsessed with the murders. By noon, the town square, pool hall, restaurants, and the street in front of the Moore house were filled with people. More people arrived throughout the day. Many of them knew the Moors or the Stillingers, but most simply came because they heard about the murders and wanted to somehow be a part of the momentous event. Most of the onlookers were local people on the first day, but in the days that followed, people traveled to Villisca by train from all over the state. The hotel rooms and the boarding houses in town quickly filled up. Before long, even the hotels in nearby towns were filled, and within a few days, an out-of-town reporter who was trying to cover the story was liable to find that the closest available room might be an hour's train ride away from Villisca. People watched the detectives and the doctors as they went in and out of the house. They talked, gossiped, and spread their own theories of the crime. Just about anyone could get attention if he talked loud enough, and anyone who could claim to have actually been inside the house was given more importance than he probably deserved. Theories and potential suspects were plentiful. One of the first suspects was a man named Sam Moyer, husband of one of JB's younger sisters. Moyer was a shiftless, itinerant gambler who had married Anna Moore, had a couple of children with her, but had little interest in staying at home with his family. JB and his brothers were left to provide financial support for Anna and her offspring. JB was not happy with the situation and often said so, but usually not to Moyer. Some of JB's employees were under the impression that JB had once written the footloose Moyer, who was living in Oregon at the time, a stern letter reminding him of his responsibilities as a husband and father. Others claimed that the two men had a physical altercation at the time of the annual Old Settlers Days event a few months before. There were also questions about Lee Van Gilder, the divorced husband of one of Sarah Moore's sisters. Van Gilder was known for being a violent man who had harbored bitter feelings toward his ex-wife. He'd had several run-ins with the law and rumor had it that he and JB had been involved in a quarrel, which led to Van Gilder and his wife separating and their eventual divorce. And naturally, there was Joe Stillinger, the unlikable father of the two victims. Rumors said that he'd recently had problems with some of his hired men. However, the idea that one of them could have hated Stillinger enough to kill his daughters and the entire Moore family was dismissed as pretty unlikely. 
Most people, when not wondering about their neighbors, were worrying about any strangers that had been in town on the days leading up to the murders. There was no way of keeping track of everyone. Villisca was a railroad town, and on any given day, a dozen or more passenger trains brought hobos, sightseers, businessmen, salesmen, and scores of other people to town. Men passed through on their way to jobs, farms, and military service. Some stayed a few hours, others stayed for days. In addition to the railroads, people came to town in automobiles, buggies, and on horseback. Some of them simply passed through, others stayed longer. The locals had no idea who most of them were, where they'd come from, or where they were going next. The list of possible suspects seemed to grow larger with each passing hour, which encouraged the curious to talk, accuse, and speculate even more. It was on the afternoon of the first day that rumors spread claiming that Frank Jones might be involved in the murders. It was Jones himself who inadvertently contributed to the stories. Dennis Meyerhoff, a longtime acquaintance of Jones who had worked with him on political issues, happened to be in the area on business on June 10th. He sought Frank out and told him that he'd heard about the murders on the train that morning, and one of the men spreading the news had hinted that Jones might have something to do with them. Both Meyerhoff and Frank later said that they laughed at the absurdity of the situation, but any humor that Frank found in being considered a suspect was short-lived. He made the mistake of repeating what his friend told him, never thinking that anyone would take it seriously, but they did. Anything he could have said at this point, well, it was too late. The seed had been planted and it would not be long before the offhand comment grew into a storm of conspiracy, alleged corruption, and murder. Frank's life would be ruined, not by mere suspicion, but by a charismatic detective who would soon become convinced Frank was a killer. Everyone was talking, but the investigation was also proceeding. Search parties made up of National Guardsmen and local volunteers examined outbuildings in town. They started with the Moore's barn and continued on from there. They were looking for discarded clothing with blood on it or any other kind of clue. There was also the remote possibility that the killer might be hiding somewhere nearby. Hotel registers were checked and agents for the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad questioned their conductors and searched their ticket sale registers for anything out of the ordinary. But if they'd found it, they probably never would have known what it was. The bloodhounds that Hank Horton had fretted about hiring arrived in town that night at 9 p.m., about the same time that Thomas O'Leary, the detective from the Kirk Agency, also arrived. The dogs were taken to the Moore house. Even though it had been handled by an unknown number of people since the murders, the ax was used to give a scent to the dogs. At first, the hounds seemed to have a trail. They raced out the front door, turned north on 4th Avenue, and then headed west to the edge of town. The dogs then turned south toward the Nottaway River, but when they encountered heavy brush along the riverbank, they lost interest. They were taken across the river, but the trail seemed to be lost. Dr. Lindquist convened a coroner's inquest late on Monday afternoon, but it was not until evening that he took the jury into the Moore House to view the bodies. Several undertakers had been called and were ready to begin their solemn work once Lindquist allowed the corpses to be taken away. Around midnight, they were carried out one by one, placed in a wagon, and taken to the fire station, which was serving as a temporary morgue. Armed members of the Villisca National Guard unit were stationed at the door. By supper time, most of the locals that had gathered outside of the house had gone home to their families who were eagerly awaiting news. As darkness fell over Villisca, the shock and excitement over the murders was replaced by the sobering realization that a killer was at large, possibly still there with them in the community. 
The men who had been speculating in broad daylight about who'd had a grudge against J.B. Moore were now realizing that a killer could be in their midst, and he might strike again. Men sat up all night with loaded guns. Doors were locked and lamps were left burning. People who lived alone sought out neighbors with whom to spend the night. Closets were searched and many looked under their beds before they climbed into them. In the days to come, the hardware stores sold out of hasps and locks, ordered more and found those spoken for in advance of their arrival. In a town where no one had ever needed to lock their doors, people were filled with fear. Many who had never owned a gun before bought one as soon as they could. Many locals got into the habit of carrying those guns with them and continued to do so for years after the murders. Residents began using their chamber pots again, something usually only done on the coldest winter nights rather than make the dark and lonely walk to the outhouse. There were very few people in Villisca who slept well that first night or for many nights to come. If you're brave enough to come back for our next episode, we'll return to Villisca for the horror-filled summer of 1912 when residents waited and watched for the killer of the Moore family to return. We'll also go back in time to before the murders in Villisca and follow the Axeman as he continued his terrible trail of blood to the town of Ellsworth, Kansas, where, as the newspapers put it, another family was foully slain. Just remember, when you get ready to go to bed tonight, be sure to lock your doors. You never know who might be out there. possible suspects seemed to get larger with each passing hour, which encouraged... <laughs> I can't say this. Oh, my God. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Ready for another one. Yeah, long time this no, is a no different chat. One. Yeah. Is this yeah. is a different yeah, one. It's a little different. No flashback. I guess that's the best way. It's <laughs> like know, if you watch an episode what else of to Lost. Call it. Yeah. yeah. If there was an episode of Lost with no flashback or, Yeah, it's like know, the flash but, sideways kind of thing, but yeah. so we're just going to be talking straight Velisca. Yeah, this it was time. it you know, it got to the point in the narrative that we got to the actual murders. Mm -hmm. And the aftermath of the murders, really, because no one knows for sure exactly what happened. But we'll talk about that much later in the podcast, but or in the season, yes. rather, in the season. Uh, but this was kind of a case of where I didn't want to break away because mm -hmm. this all needed to be, I felt, put in one episode. Right. So. And this follows a similar pattern to the book as well, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, there sense. are no flashbacks in the book. It's chronological. It's like if you watch... The Godfather trilogy, uh -huh. and you watch it in the cut where they did it chronological, where they put all the stuff oh, yeah. with uh, De Niro in the very beginning, because history-wise, that's how the book is. Right. So, but this, we're doing the podcast like Godfather 2. 
Okay. All right. So, Good to know. Okay. Also, side note, I think was it Topher Grace? I think that was editing all the Star Wars movies like oh, together as one I thing because so, yeah. he did Black Klansman and he said it fucked him up so much that he's <laughs> yeah. like he needed something to focus on because he hated being David Duke so much. Um, anyway, if you can find it and check it out, I think that's what happened. I think I think so too. I think you're right. Uh, all right. Before we get started, we got a couple housekeeping things. Um, I want to start off saying thank you for everybody that's purchased shirts and hoodies and oh, things yeah, from our from new, new store. New store. Yeah. It's, a, it's AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Uh, really appreciate it and. Um, it's great just to see people wearing stuff, you know, that's, it's yeah. You know, years and years ago, this, here's an old story. For okay. You. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tell back me. in the, this must've been like mid nineties and I just started, uh, American hauntings just mm-hmm. in the early nineties. And this was about middle through and people ask me, Hey, how come you don't have t-shirts? And, and then again, you have to base this on the time period. Okay. And I said, you know, you know, I, I think t-shirts would be cool, but I, I'm never going to do them. And they're like, why? I said, because you know, every time I watch an episode of Cops and I see guys, you know, being arrested and, and usually their shirts get ripped off mm-hmm. or they're, that would be my luck. It would be <laughs> someone in an American Hauntings t-shirt, right. you know, being arrested on Cops. And I said, I, I just, which is a lot of, really shows what I thought of our fan base. At yes. That was a bad answer, I guess. Right. But I've always remembered that as we put these shirts out and something, there's this tiny little trigger in the back of my mind that every time someone buys an American Haunting shirt, I think, man, I hope I don't see that in an episode of Cops. <laughs> I don't even know if it's on the air anymore. That's I have really, no idea. It's really but funny. Because it was really big in the 90s. There's a, there's a <laughs> joke that, it's funny, it's ironic because there's a joke that says uh, everything I know, like from watching Cops, the way to not get arrested is just to always wear a shirt. Because yeah. they say most people <laughs> yeah. on there get arrested yeah. are not, not wearing, wearing a shirt, but it probably true. gets ripped off. I would yeah. imagine in yeah. the struggle. And um, <laughs> I mean, I actually would go the opposite way. And if I saw it on TV, I'd be like, ah, oh, that's yeah. A, that's now a shirt. I think I probably would. I guess I was a little more worried about it at the time for whatever reason. I have no idea why. I mean, <laughs> I understand it was a different time. <laughs> anyway, so thank you for for all those orders. Um, also, I've been tweeting at uh, Amer Haunts Pod. So if you want to talk to the podcast, <laughs> if uh, you put in American Hauntings in the search, it'll, it will it pops up. Yeah, it will. It and I, again, I struggled with the name for a long time. Uh, as yeah, you we know, did. We went because they only get fifteen characters, and I was yeah. trying to figure it out. So thanks for dealing with that. But yeah, search for it. Um, yeah, follow us, tweet at us. Well, let's have some fun. We've already had fun with it, I think. Yeah, really. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Troy's been really mean to me on two different <laughs> Twitter not. accounts, so it's been great. Uh, just crushing my dreams left and right. Um, Haunted America Conference tickets still on sale, but yep. selling out. But quickly. selling quick. Yeah, we are quickly approaching the two thirds sold out mark. I mean, that's that's all I can say mm-hmm. is that you know um, we we hope that you'll come because if you. If you live anywhere in this, even remotely in the area, and we get people who come from New York, Pennsylvania, California, Texas to the event every year, but let's say that you really don't want to put much effort into it, but you live in Illinois or Missouri, man, you're you're missing out if you don't come. It's really worth. It's a lot of fun. Yep. I mean, just think it's it's you know uh, several hundred people who listen to the podcast, basically, or mm-hmm. a lot of them who do all in one place. I mean, that's that's kind of what it boils down to. Yeah. Is like-minded people getting together, having paranormal fun for the weekend. It is it is a blast. It really is. And I, I always look forward to it. And, you know, it's it's our big event of the year. And so if you came to Dead of Winter and, you know, we were packed in there like sardines, we got a lot more space, you know, at, at the conference. And it, it's just fun. 
you know, and, and hopefully people will be able to make it. So totally. come, if you're going to come get your tickets, cause we're going to run out. So that's I, what I can say. I would say if you're someone who feels like when you're at work, you can't talk to your coworkers about things you like and you <laughs> right. feel weird or you always bring up, you know, way too much about serial killers and you right. feel awkward. Right. This is the place this for you. This is the place for you. That is You will right. be surrounded by, right. by friends. The, all the people who are doing the exact same things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then you can have conversations about how you can't have conversations at work. Exactly. And it'll exactly. be great. Uh, some other events coming up. Actually, you know, a couple, yep. two things I want to mention real Please, quick. Yeah. Um, we do have two evenings with the Axeman mm-hmm. coming up. Um, for those of you who attended the one that we had recently, um, our rescheduled event from January, it's kind of like this entire season of the podcast in one night with food. So there's spoilers. Um, yeah. So there are some spoilers for the rest <laughs> of the season, but it is fun and uh, we had a good time. And we've got one coming up on May 4th in Jacksonville, Illinois, at our headquarters um, in our event space there. And then, and that doesn't include dinner. And then we have one in Alton at the Mineral Springs that does include dinner on August 10th. Um, So if you are interested, there are tickets available right now. Um, and they are filling up too. Um, so if you're thinking about coming, uh, grab a ticket. Um, it, it is a lot of fun. We mm-hmm. we had a really good time, and um, yeah, we do. I do quite a few different ones. Um, you know, the Axeman, Lizzie Borden. Um, we've done the Exorcist. We got the Black Dahlia coming up. Um, so we, you know, those are fun. I'm doing one on uh, Memorial Day weekend on Friday night is uh, an, an evening with the dead. It's, it's going to be all about death and burial customs and traditions and funerals and postmortem photographs and all that kind of stuff. So I'll be showing, you know, a wide variety of different things and talking about why all these traditions came about. Mm-hmm. And why do we do this and why do we do that? And wearing black and visitations and wakes and the whole bit. So that's, it's always interesting. I, I, I hesitate to use the word fun, but it is, right. it's always interesting. We struggle so. with adjectives. I know, sometimes I know. With this. So, and, but last thing, um, in just a couple of weeks, we will be kicking off the first night of our, our new tour, which isn't really new, but our Springfield hauntings tour in Springfield, Illinois, um, is, uh, we, part of the tour takes place in the, the Lincoln home national park, uh, and then we visit a lot of sites in downtown Springfield. Um, we actually started that tour back in 2006. Yeah. John Winterbauer and I, mm-hmm. and we did it for a, a few years. And then we just kind of went on hiatus, got busy with other stuff. And then, well, I also moved to Chicago. So there was a oh, bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then um, we decided to bring it back this year. So it actually will be starting and um april 26th is our very first tour so it's just a couple weeks away awesome so john helped us put it together but his son ian who is quote the tallest poet on earth and and he this dude is really tall yeah (laughs) and anyway he is um he's going to be one of our guides he's i mean he was like my first person i thought of Mm -hmm. boy if we could get ian to do this it's a real big deal from what i understand he he volunteered yeah exactly (laughs) so and uh, our friend brianna snow is going to be a guide with us um it's going to be fun Mm -hmm. so we're we're really excited about that so the tickets are are finally on sale at springfieldhauntings.com nice there you go well check it out so does is you start in the Lincoln home? We, we actually start at the Vachel Lindsay house, which is uh, just a couple of blocks away from the Lincoln park. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's where the tour begins. And then we go through uh, the Lincoln neighborhood and then we go downtown. We visit the 
state capital governor's mansion every place with a ghost story about mm-hmm. it in downtown springfield got it sorry i was gonna ask and if, a lot of weird history too it's not all just ghosts i was gonna ask if his yeah. home was actually made out of lincoln logs but oh, man. <laughs> sorry I, i've been sitting on that one for a couple minutes um yeah but that sounds like fun um and if you're in the area check it out yeah so every weekend april through november every every weekend yep, every weekend that's how all right there you yeah. go you have no excuse okay it's now time for our 10 second ad Lisa, do the thing. Ten seconds. Here we go. New Patreon rewards. Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. New spooky shirts. AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Sponsor an episode. AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com slash sponsor. Now back to the show. So you ready to dive in? I'm ready. So we're going straight to Villisca this yep. time and we're... We're not leaving. We're not leaving. No. So sorry about that. Anyway, so Mary Peckham? Yes. Moore's neighbor, she gets up at 4 a.m., which makes me feel terrible, (laughs) because I probably went to bed at about 4 (laughs) a.m. the last couple nights, Um, but this is farm life, right? right. Well, it's small town rule life. I mean, you got up when the sun comes up, or in this case, before, and you, you know, when the sun sun went down, you know, know, they they didn't have this particular little part of the neighborhood, didn't have electricity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, once it got dark... I mean, it kind of limited your outdoor activities. You know, we talked about how when the Moors were on their way home, people were sitting out on their front porch because it was hot. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sitting out there, you know, drinking lemonade or whatever, using whatever ice the ice man had brought that morning. And that's what there was to do. I mean, they went to church. They had a nice evening program at church. Yeah. That was big entertainment for the week. You know, they had fairs. They had, I mean, you read a book. I mean, they were just, they're, you know, you're, you're, time in the evenings were was limited you know so you know she got up early it was also monday so it was laundry day okay so she got up early to do that because well you also wanted to if you're going to be doing a lot of cooking and stuff you want to get all that done in the morning see that's that's why in those days in the past in america's past your big meal of the day was what we now call lunch but that used to be called dinner because you did all your cooking in the morning especially in the summertime because it was so hot and there was no air conditioning or anything. So you wanted to get that out of the way yeah. while it was still not so hot that outside. So, you know, you, you fried the chicken and you, you know, the, the potatoes and all that. And then you had a big lunch. It was a big deal. Everybody would come, they'd have dinner and then went on, finished up their day. You know, that's where, you know, your hour long lunch break comes from mm-hmm. today is that's tradition. That's yeah. from our past. That was dinner hour. And then in the evening you would have supper. It wouldn't wasn't dinner in the evening. Okay. It was supper, and usually that was a lighter meal, mm-hmm. leftovers from lunch or sandwiches or something like that. It would be a lighter meal because, and really, health wise, it's really what we should be doing anyway. Yeah, because you don't want to eat your big meal late at night and then go to bed. It's bad metabolism. So if and- you eat it earlier in the day. Uh, it's, it's obviously it's better for you. You've worked off that in your, throughout the afternoon, Mm -hmm. you know, so interesting. that's usually how it was done. So her getting up that early is really normal. And plus she had a lot of other things to do besides laundry. I mean, she had to go out and you had to feed the chickens. You had to milk the cows, you had to gather the eggs, you know, and then she would, her, her kids were grown, uh, but she would, you know, put together, she'd have breakfast for her husband and then pack his lunch so he could take it with him to work, mm-hmm. you know, if he wasn't coming home, which most people did. Yeah. So at that point in our history, later that would change. After World War II, that started to change. People started to take their lunch, you know, with them to work and it would be a much smaller meal. And that's how everything got all flip-flopped. Uh, that's so why everything's so terrible changed. Now. Yeah, things changed. 
All right. Well, hashtag farm life. Okay, so now I, I get that. Um, and so there's still no stirring from the Moore's house at seven, which I guess at this point, it's, I mean, it's a long time. Well, right. You know? And plus, you know, Sarah's got, you know, there's no school going on. And even if there had been, her kids, three of her kids were still pretty young. Yeah. And so, you know, she's got four kids at home. And by seven o'clock, I would think that on, on a normal day that that, that was a madhouse next door right. with four little kids. And so that's why she described it as the, the odd stillness. Right. Is that right? Because, right. yeah, it shouldn't be – something's off. It shouldn't, yeah, something shouldn't be that way. odd. Yeah. Um, I personally – I'm thrilled when I don't see my neighbors well, four days. I know that it's Again, different, different situation. <laughs> different time. <laughs> um, I will say that they – are dedicated they have a schedule they are smoking weed by 6 a.m <laughs> oh, every man. day like oh, clockwork man. it's it's it is a feat i'm not gonna yeah, lie how, uh, how consistent they are yeah um no problem with it i just i can't do that at 6 a.m but anyway moving on so mary gets um she's you know she doesn't know what to do finally calls jb's brother ross um after some time he gets into the house sees in the darkness right. there's two figures well, the, in the one bed. the one thing i liked about this sure. and it kind yeah. of goes back to something we were discussing in our last episode is that she called ross's house but ross was at the drugstore mm-hmm. and so jesse ross's wife called the drugstore to tell him and then ross then called over who could couldn't call his parents yeah tell me about the from phone, the drugstore so he had to call over to the implement store and talk to ed seeley who then had to call JB's and and Ross's parents who lived outside of town, right? Because there were two different phone companies at mm-hmm. the time, uh, Mutual and Bell. Now later they would be combined. You okay, know, Mutual is, Bell. Is Bell's the only thing I right, heard, but right, like but there were lots of little companies mm-hmm. that eventually became big companies and eventually became you know, I mean there was there's so many, but Bell you know was Pacific Bell and you mm-hmm. know and all these different variations of stuff and then they grew together and then they blew them all apart right and so then that's why we have like sprint and at&t and separate right. companies gonna break up the because monopoly. they had a monopoly yeah they eventually had a monopoly but there were these this tiny town had two competing phone companies and you couldn't call if somebody if you tried to you called the operator and you said hey i need to i I need you to connect me to Cody's house, and and then she'd say, "Well, I'm sorry, he's not on our system, so I couldn't. I couldn't call, except, you know, JB's store, like most of the other businesses in town, except for apparently the drugstore, mm-hmm. had both lines, and so Ed was able to grab the mutual line or whatever, and then and then he could call outside of town. Right, right. So, so I know this is a funny. very. Like, I just always thought that was I always an interesting little aspect. It is to, very interesting. It's very frustrating. And it, well, and right, and that's part of the problems. The you grow, know, yeah, with the, the investigation is all of the, you know, these little things. And the power company that decided to, since the city, nobody, you didn't have individual electric bills back then. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, there wasn't enough. Not enough people had it. Okay. So the city would pay for electricity and uh-huh. then lines would be split off to people's houses who wanted to pay for it. But mostly it was just to light up the downtown and, and what street lights they had. Right. Well, the city council decided not to pay the bill. And so the electric company shut them off. Uh, and it happened to be that day mm-hmm. on June 9th. Oh, it was, I mean, it was not a, day. It was not a conspiracy or anything. It just, that was the day it happened. And that Sunday, the power company shut off the power to the town of Villisca, which is why at the end of this, this section I talked about, you know, newspaper recorded 
reporter called it Velisca's darkest night. Mm-hmm. Well, it was. In, so they were making you know, tons ways. in newspapers. Yeah, back even then. then huh? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a very uh, guys like, got paid by the word back then. It was, <laughs> right. You could definitely write a lot more than you can. A now. lot of filler. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is definitely like a very millennial thing to say. But everything you're telling me about this, it sounds terrible this, this See, time i don't i don't, I don't to get up I this early the, i don't the phone think that thing. but you wouldn't know any different if you live then that's true you know what i that's mean true. it's, it's uh, relative it was, i guess to my you know, so. experience now so that makes sense okay so there's a lot of problems trying to get communication anyway brother decides he's going to go into this house yeah. and because the door's locked the door's not normally right. locked this not is a weird locked. thing yeah he's it's it's there's stuff covering the window so it's really really dark in here because again there's not electricity in there but in the darkness he sees two figures in the bed with a blood-soaked sheet and he says fuck it runs outside yeah. call the police something yeah, terrible, something terrible has happened, has happened. Yeah. another brother harry then shows up they try to be like hey you don't want to go in there <laughs> which of which of course he doesn't but if he's gonna go right, you're gonna right. go in there and strikes a match while searching. It, it, this the, when I was reading this in your book, it reminded me of Shutter Island when like Leonardo sure. DiCaprio is walking around with right, the matches, right, right. Um, you know, and he finds an axe leaning against the bedroom wall. Uh, then let's see. So there's a well, that was actually Hank Horton that found. Oh, I'm it. S- Harry didn't. I'm sorry, Harry yeah. didn't. He went in, but Hank Horton was already in there, and he right. told him to get out. Right, and so but Hank it, but, was the yeah. City you Marshall. were right, but it was Hank Horton who was in there. You know. He's the one who found the bodies and then searched the whole house. Got it. So Hank's the city marshal. Right. And he's in way over his head. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was a guy, nice enough guy who, you know, was his only job had been making sure doors were locked, you know, in businesses and, you know, locking up a drunk or two. Right. I mean, it was a it was a security guard. He was Paul Blart. Yeah, okay. Cop, okay. You know, I mean, essentially, it was a security job. He really had no... He had no law enforcement experience and really had no skill for mm-hmm. law enforcement. He never needed any. There was no training that came with this job. Right. So, so he calls Dr. J. Clark Cooper, who's a local physician and surgeon. And then the, what I'm calling the dream team <laughs> goes yeah. in, uh, and that's in quotes, but it's Hank Horton, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Howe, Hugh, yes. Howe, yeah. Dr. F.S. Williams, Ed Seeley. Who was the guy from J.B. Store. Right. His, his manager, which mm-hmm. had... No yeah. reason to How be did, in there. Yeah, yeah so, and neither did Reverend Ewing. And then Reverend matter. Ewing. So they're the first group to go through the yeah. house around nine a.m. Uh, the coroner shows up. A coroner bit shows later. up. So, and this is something uh, we have. I mentioned this to Troy the other day that we don't talk about. We haven't gone into a lot of details about this, and but I want to. Technically, the faces of these girls were too badly beaten to be recognized. Yes. But the Bibles on the nightstand next had to them their had their in names them. in them. Yeah. So you already don't have very good forensics and things back then, and it, it, impre- um, none. <laughs> it imp- yes, of course, it impresses the hell out of me that people are able to recreate these crime scenes, even now or then or anything, but to be able to figure out how people did this to know that he went in, hit people once, and then went back and redid things. I guess there's some logic. To some that. of that, yeah, some of that came about as the investigation went on, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it needs to be discussed now. Yeah, so that. This all makes sense because otherwise you're talking, I mean, you know, this would be instead of, I don't know how many episodes, let's say it's 20 episodes, it'd be 50 because we'd have to keep going back and forth because then they would learn something three days later. Like, oh, this Because there would be, because I'm adding in things that were part of the testimony from the coroner's inquest mm-hmm. and things like that. You're adding in a lot of hindsight stuff. Right, for right. So research. I'm adding some of this in so that it all, you know, seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, just like the the coat that 
you know, belonged to a boy. It was probably Boyd or Herman or Paul's coat mm-hmm. was in the closet and they hung it over the, the window because there was no curtain. Right. You know, so that they wouldn't figure that out till later. Got but it. I put it in here because it needs to, I'm trying to set the scene. Okay. So that makes sense. And then this part is so upsetting. The Stillinger girl's mother learned of their deaths when oh, the yeah. telephone operator, she was trying to get a hold of this, this house where her kids were. And the operator said, everyone in that house is dead. Yeah. I'm sure not. Well, I don't know. It's a pretty small town, but she probably didn't know who she was talking to. The operator probably mm. didn't know that okay. it was the daughter of the victims. I mean, at this point, all she said was that everyone in that house is dead. Um, she probably just called, can you put me through to, um, you know, either Jamie Moore's house or there may they may have been a numeric code for, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Or, JB457. Whatever, yeah, exactly. Whatever, yeah. You know, um, so... You know, and she said, well, I can't put you through because everyone in that house is dead. Now, how would you like to find that out about and knowing that your kids were there? Well, you haven't been able to reach it. Essentially, I would I think was a safe assumption. It caused her to eventually have a miscarriage. I'm guessing the stress of all of that. Probably not this incident exactly, but the entire thing. It happened. Yeah, it was everything altogether. Yeah. So she eventually has a miscarriage. Um, And so Dr. Cooper admits that. The whole thing, while he's in, he's in the house, the whole thing fucked him up so much that yeah. he didn't do as good of a job as he should have. Right. And I can't blame him. No, I can't either. At all. And he was a young guy. He was a pretty young guy compared to these other doctors who, you know, while, you know, they didn't go around, you know, examining crime scenes, you got to figure these older guys who are doctors and surgeons in a small farm community mm-hmm. have seen every kind of accident that you can imagine in their careers mm-hmm. um, and, and seeing the way that, you know, farm machinery has changed just the basic things that people died from then that they don't die from now, you know, which is, you know, I could get on a 20 minute thing about vaccinations, but um, I won't. Uh, but these people were dying from things that we don't die from anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, stepping on a nail, you know, these, uh, yeah, this and, kind yeah. of stuff. And uh, so these, they probably seen about everything and Dr. Cooper really hadn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so his, his report of what he saw sort of fell apart yeah. after that, but you have more, Dr. Williams seems to be the one who did the most, or, you know, made the most notes that day. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Lindquist, when he showed up the corner, when he got there, because it's not like you just jump in your car and fly on over, you got to get on a train and wait for the train to run to Villisca because most people didn't have cars and, but that was still quicker than trying to get there by horse and buggy. Right. So, you know, time, it took time to get everybody together, like the, you know, the private detective that they called to mm-hmm. come to town. You know, he didn't right. get there till late because even though he was on his way, as soon as he got the call, it took a lot of time back then. Right. So, and we'll, we'll get more into that. Uh, but I wanted to ask just, just out of my own curiosity, have you ever seen something like so insane that you don't go into fight or flight, you just are going to shock? You ever been in a situation like that? I don't think so. No, no, no nothing really. I can't. I can't think of anything. I know I am putting you on the spot. Yeah, no. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything. I mean, I've seen, I've seen plenty of dead bodies. I mean, yeah. literally seen people die. Um, but really? Yeah, I saw there. I saw somebody drown once. Um, I was just a kid, uh-huh. and we were at the beach. Well, that explains a lot. Somebody, dr- yeah, somebody drowned. They hauled them up out of the water, and they were dead. Wow. And, um, so, I mean, I've seen plenty of dead bodies, but, uh-huh. and I, but I don't think I've ever, I mean, I've never been in this situation that this yeah. guy's been. I can, I can see how it would really mess you up, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're, 
have never even dealt with anything like this before. Yeah. And it's 1912. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, <laughs> I mean, this is not, this is not normal. Well, it's pretty, pretty much pre, anywhere. Pre-World War One, World yeah. War Two stuff, too. I mean, yeah, so right, exactly. So we hadn't been hardened to the shock of mass death. Well, not since the Civil War. Right. right. I mean, you know, this is this is two generations of people who had never been exposed to mass death. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, that was right around the bend. I mean, it was coming just in a few years later. There yeah. would be, you know, millions of people dead. But nobody had dealt with that kind of thing. You certainly, and I think I said that, a number of times in this monologue is that, you know, things like this just don't happen here. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just, there aren't crimes like this in Villisca or anywhere in this entire region or probably really in most of the state of Iowa at the time. Yeah. It's just not the kind of stuff that happened. This is not the big city. There's no Chicago. There's no, this isn't New York. You know, this was a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. The closest town, big town is Kansas city. And, Still, 1911, you didn't see this kind of thing. Yeah. So. No, that makes sense. Uh, and I'm sure Cooper's probably just like, look, I'm, I'm a smart guy. This is not what I signed up <laughs> no, for. No, I Signed up to do. But I mean, his vis- his his really vivid memories of, of like, and I think that's what really did it was, was Lena Stillinger's hand dangling out of the sheet. That was what he remembered the most. And mm-hmm. I think it just left such an impression on him that by the time he got upstairs to look at, you know, six more bodies that had been beaten beyond recognition with an axe, I think his brain had just shut down. Lights are on, nobody's home. Yeah, exactly. I think he was going through the motions at that point. Yep, that that makes sense. So I have a story that's not, it's absolutely nothing like this, but I I was driving home one one morning and it was like maybe 5.30 or so and I was on a highway and I was in the left lane and I I was going about 75, 80 miles an hour and there's a uh, like a, a Ford Explorer, a big one next to me in the right lane, and decides to pass pass me on the right. So they had to be going 85, 90 or something. And I see this giant buck deer run across the highway, and I see it, uh, you know, to the left, and it keeps hopping. Oh man! And I mean, it it committed suicide essentially, yeah, right, and right. it runs right in front of this SUV, and the SUV's probably 20 feet ahead of me, and I see it annihilate this yeah. deer, and I look in my rearview mirror and see the aftermath of that. <laughs> and I was just like, it was so early. Yeah, the sun was just funny. coming up. I was like, I don't know what to do right yeah, now. No. And wow. that's, you know, very different than this. But uh, it, it sent me Still, right in a shock. Yeah. I, I didn't know what to yeah. do. So I was just, yeah, I was just wondering. Um, but yeah, of course, you've, you've seen dead bodies and didn't go in shock because you're you. That, that, <laughs> that totally all adds up. I'll just add that <laughs> to, to your day's work. Add it to your file here and the, the, the uh, psychoanalysis I'm doing here. So. <laughs> yeah. The crimes weren't just mismanaged or uh, misinvestigated or anything. No, these, it, these would be hard crimes to solve today, I feel yeah. like. With- well, not impossible. A lot easier today than yeah. then. I mean, this wasn't... I mean, these guys had zero experience, but it wasn't all their fault. Yes. I mean, a lot these things didn't happen. Them. And besides that, you know, what would they have done? Couldn't I mean, match So if somebody had left fingerprints behind, what would they have matched it right. to? Maybe no years DNA. and years later, maybe. Yeah. That's even, but most people were not, you know, as we say today, in the system. Yeah. I mean, that's something that only dates back to like, what, the 70s? Yeah. I mean, it's that everybody was in like a nationwide system. And mm-hmm. even then, you know, there's several different systems. So you could be in one and not in another. And, and nobody even wants to today, talk. Even today, nobody, nobody would ever know. Each other, yeah. You know? And so. then crime scene photos are rarely taken. And it's, it's, <laughs> they 
Yeah. Not for lack of trying, even right. though we think that that guy might have been kind of doing it for creepy reasons. Well, well Probably still I, that, helped, was, right? that was my suspicion. My okay. suspicion was that he, he went down to take pictures. He was a local druggist who was a photography. And again, you got to remember, not everybody had cameras mm-hmm. either. I mean, although more people did because by then Kodak had put out the brownie. And the so brown, what's the that, brownie? It was the like the first camera for everybody that anybody would buy. They were like five bucks. And oh. so it was... That was still a lot more money than so it is $12, now. $12,000? No, no. <laughs> I don't know that it. much. But, you know, they were maybe 40 or 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. In our so it was a consumer camera. Yeah, it was a consumer camera, right. And so people had them. And, you know, it was always, they would advertise in all the magazines of the era, the, you know, the Life and the Saturday Evening Post, the, the first Life, not the one that most people know. Um, and it would, you know, the ad would say, don't forget to pack your brownie. Uh-huh, and okay. because when you're going on vacation, you want to take pictures. And so... Mm-hmm. That was the first wave of everyone, or not everyone, but most people being able to afford a camera. Yeah. Um, It was pre-everybody can afford a car. It was, you know, that kind of thing. But lots of people had cameras, and so he was kind of a buff. Even in this small town, I don't think there were a lot of people with cameras. Mm -hmm. He came down to take pictures, and the, the doctors chased him away. But I've always wondered if he didn't come down to take pictures because he could sell them as postcards. Yeah. In his drugstore, because that was a big thing at the time. There were postcards all over the place of different events that had happened not mm-hmm. not just places postcards are we could do a whole podcast on postcards please seriously let's, let's we, not we won't but <laughs> we could um because they've had an interesting history they haven't always been just a souvenir for a place you visited um people used to sell postcards of train wrecks that pictures huh. that were taken um you know battlefields um accidents yeah. um, explosions floods uh, lynchings wow. um all kinds of stuff so my guess was that he was trying to get some pictures mm-hmm. that he could reproduce and sell but well we we don't know that i that's just my guess right so. right okay no, so so that makes sense um this time there so there are multiple lamps in Velisca uh, that were found at the house. Yeah, at the yeah. house. Did this often happen, or was it usually just one? Is this an oddity? Or? Well, I think this this house was bigger than the other houses mm-hmm. so far in our story. Um, the only the the house in Monmouth was a, probably about the same size as this, but the houses in the house in the two cottages in Colorado, the house in Texas were very small. And um, but in this case, they were two lamps, and I think the reason for that is that he had taken a lamp upstairs because I don't think he knew that the Stillinger girls were, and we'll talk more about that later, mm-hmm, but I'm not sure he knew they were there. And I, so I think he picked up a lamp out of the living room because he did take the lamp out of the kitchen and that's the one they found upstairs. Mm-hmm. So he, the front parlor had a lamp in it normally. And I think that was the one they found in the bedroom with the Stillinger girls. Got it. But that was later. I wonder um, why wouldn't you check the, closest bedroom to you first maybe didn't know it was a bedroom i think that if if i'm right about this i think that and we don't know why he chose the victims he chose but i believe he probably watched them and only knew there were six people who lived right the other two shouldn't have been there right they were there by chance got it you know it was an accident that makes sense um and then something that's come up a lot of times and that i was thinking too it's 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 weird that it doesn't seem like many people wake up during a lot of these yeah, things. Yeah, I don't. But I we know. also similar thing happened in Amityville, right? And that had to be way louder. Well, that was those. That was a gun. It, yeah, it had to be way louder. And no one woke up. And right. so I think it's. I think you probably um, underestimate how much stuff you could sleep through. I, I guess. guess or, yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's something interesting. But then also, 
all of the mirrors had been covered in this yeah, one. Yeah, that was new. So yeah, that did, did that new. happen anywhere well, else? I, I have a theory behind that, but you'll have to wait till the Damn end. That's, so many questions. That's, that's going to be our second to last episode. Okay, because so, I, yeah. I'm not, so we obviously you're not going to answer this I now, have a theory on, on that one because that's the only time that happened. Okay. But I have a theory. Oh, right, okay. You know what it is because I've already do. told you. Now I so. do. Because I was thinking, I was, I was talking to Lee about it yesterday, and I was like, I don't know if it's a superstitious thing, or if I was trying no, to... No, like, I mean, that's something that, that's a that's actually a funeral custom. People used to yeah. cover up mirrors, uh, because it was an old tradition that if you didn't cover the mirrors, the spirit of the person who died could become trapped in the mirror, and then right. they end up haunting the house. Right, And okay. that's a that was a mainstream belief in, okay. you know, in the middle to late 1800s, but that had nothing to do with this. Okay, because I knew yeah, I'd heard of this different. somewhere, yeah. and I knew yeah. that it was ringing some bells of some stereotypical movie thing I saw yeah. or something. Or yeah. like, Well, you were you were at Dead of Winter. Well, no, that was last year I talked about the dead, dinner with the dead after Dead of Winter. Mm, oh, I wasn't there and for that one. there for that the weather one. So and my I don't family know. Maybe, was in town. Maybe I'd... We talked about it at some point. Yeah. Okay. So interest. Okay. I know. I kind of know where you're going with that, but I'm definitely going to push on that uh, when the time is right. So, Horton Jackson find themselves in charge of this crazy situation while they waited for Thomas O'Leary, private detective right. from Kirk Agency, to show up. Right. You said the three agencies at the time: Pinkerton, Burns, Kirk. Those I've, were the big ones. I've there were a zillion of them, but yeah. those were the big ones. Can you tell me about these? Types well, the Pinkertons. Of the Pinkertons had been around famous. since the Civil War. Um, Alan Pinkerton had been um, Lincoln's security guy later on. He had. <laughs> Did he get yeah, fired? Yeah, he didn't do a really good job. <laughs> no, he didn't actually have a Secret Service, but he had. He had been one of the people who had snuck Lincoln into Washington, D.C. when everything was starting to come apart and there had been threats against the president. There's a great book about that, um, about that, his last, his getting into, he had to send his family separately Mm -hmm. and had to sneak into the city uh, because there had been all kinds of threats. And um, Pinkerton was involved in that. And he went on to form his detective agency after the Civil War. Um, he was there for like the Chicago fire. He was a Chicago and he was a Scottish guy, immigrant who lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He was around for the fire um, and tried to secure the city afterward, helped out with that. But he, the Pinkertons became most famous for being detectives who were hunting down outlaws like Jesse James. Mm-hmm. And the Pinkertons got a really bad reputation involving Jesse James because they um, went a little rogue mm-hmm. in, in their attempts to claim the reward. Okay. And they actually had thrown a, a bomb into the house and Damn. it ended up killing, I believe it killed Jesse and Frank's mother. No, no, no. It injured their mother really badly and killed their younger brother, mm. Archie. Um, so they got a really bad reputation from that, but they're still around. The Pinkertons yeah. are still around. You know, we never sleep. The, the, the eye, that's their logo. Right, right. Um, the Burns Agency and the Kirk Agency uh, are not as widely known. And I don't know a lot about the Kirk Agency. I know more about the Burns Agency. There is a book called America's Sherlock Holmes, and mm-hmm. it's all about uh, Burns. And um, and he had a questionable reputation too especially when it came to the Lindbergh kidnapping okay in the 30s um he got really deeply involved in that but that give that gives you an idea of just how long 
these detective agencies were around Mm -hmm. really doing the job of what we consider now to be the job of the regular police Mm -hmm. or the state police or the FBI or whoever. There were were none of those things. Were they sanctioned? Could they arrest people? Yeah, they could. And they could carry guns. Uh And because eventually that started to, I mean, you know, you, you've seen some of the, you know, private detectives, that was a big thing, you Mm -hmm. know, the Mike Hammer and Sam Spade and, you know, Humphrey Bogart movies and stuff, you know, that was in the forties and the fifties and they were still, they were still around, but by then they were a lot more of a mm, looser element than they were at this time. At this time they were highly respected Mm -hmm. uh, because they were law enforcement because I mean, even the County Sheriff, had zero experience with, yeah. you know, investigating crimes. You know, that wasn't a job that they really knew how to do. And states hadn't gotten together to put together a statewide police force at the time. Iowa didn't have one. Most states didn't. Of course, we had no FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the um, 20s, Hoover put together that the Bureau of Detection, you know, which they had, they couldn't even carry guns. They had mm-hmm. absolutely no power. It wasn't until the you know, the depression in the thirties when you had people like, you know, you know, by then the, the prohibition had wreaked havoc on law enforcement. And now you had guys like, you know, pretty boy Floyd and Dillinger and these guys, that's when they put together the actual FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they weren't really even called the FBI until later on. You were just stop these bank robbers. Yeah. <laughs> but by then they could at least carry guns and stuff. But yeah. I mean, you know, there's a movie coming out or just came out on Netflix about the guys who hunted down about Frank Hamer, who hunted down Bonnie and Clyde and he was retired, mm-hmm. but they needed somebody who could get him because the, you know, there wasn't, everybody was a law enforcement was a, was still a questionable joke and there was no right. real, you know, anybody to do this stuff. So, but this gives you, this is even further back than all of that. Mm-hmm. And so they were all you had. I mean, this was it. Yeah. I mean, you, you hired detectives to come in and the state, Either sometimes the state would pay for them or the city or the county, or a lot of these guys worked for because there were dozens of detectives who showed up in Villisca hoping to, because as the reward began to grow, which we'll talk about that in upcoming episodes, yep. as the reward began to grow, it drew more and more of these guys. And a lot of them were had zero experience, but they thought, hey, well, what the hell? Maybe Make some I can money. Fi- yeah, maybe I can figure it out and claim the 50 grand or whatever. Right. So that's that's a lot of what was going on. Right. And so it, may, it starts to make things really difficult when they are incentivized to find answers, any answers, and can yeah. often be bought. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, yeah, so you got a lot of people coming in trying to, to get, get this reward money. Uh, and then another issue with this scene in particular is crowds just ran through the scene. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And so it was totally messed up by noon. People taking yeah. souvenirs. Well, and... But, but again though, I mean, what are you going to mess up? Because well, there is true. no, not messing I mean, with forensic they tried stuff. to protect the crime scene as best they could in case the killer had left clues behind. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like you were going to come in and get blood samples and you know, they, you know, they it just, True. Okay. Nothing to investigate. That that makes sense. You know? uh, but one of the people that came through there was a shady character. Uh, Burt McCall. Yes, Burt McCall. Yeah. Can we talk about him? He sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Um, people still talk about him in Villisca to this yeah. day. Yeah. I uh, I knew a guy, an older guy, who, uh, boy, he'd always, you brought up Burt McCall and got him going. And I don't know that he remembered him, but I, I'm going to guess by his age that he probably heard his parents talk about him. Okay. Um, because I actually knew a lady who uh, was a friend of Catherine Moore's. Okay. She was little, 
And she always said, you know, gosh, I, you know, what if, you know, my mom always used to say, well, you know, you were going to go and stay over with the Moors. And I mean, I don't know that it, and I don't think she really thought it was true. I think she thought it was a family story, but, um, you know, they, people still talk about all this stuff mm -hmm. around there. And, uh, you brought up Burt McCall. He'd always have something to say about him. And I'm going to say that he probably got it from his dad or his grandpa or something, but. So did he really have a chunk of JB? Uh, it's hard to say he did get into the house because he was a drinking buddy of the guy who was the commander of the national guard unit right. in Velisca, which again gives you a, an idea of how much bigger Velisca was back then than it is now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but they were big enough. They had a national guard unit in town. Yeah. It's just not something that you see much of anymore. You know, uh, but at one time it was, you know, more common, I guess, but it was definitely a something that they had that they definitely don't have now. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if he had it or not. I think it was my guess since he left it behind is that it made a good story. Right. I mean, you know, you get down there and drink in the pool hall. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Guys in there drinking beer and, and you know shooting the shit and telling tall tales. I think that was probably his tall tale. Right. Listen, but although you never know. I mean, it's very possible because everybody was going in and out of there and sure carrying there away were, souvenirs. There were and, bone fragments, yeah, I'm sure. Dipping, you know, dipping their handkerchiefs in the blood, you know, as it was a common thing for the first, like, 40 years. I'm of surprised you don't have any American of existence. Well, I wish I did. I tried to get a <laughs> Not Dillinger for lack one. Of trying. <laughs> well, you know, I've tried to get one from the Dillinger alleged Dillinger crime scene, mm -hmm. but I've never had any luck with that. Yeah. So they got to be out there somewhere. I'm sure. Or they've been thrown away over the years by somebody's relatives who went, what the hell is this? Yeah, is Why gross. grandma keep this bloody handkerchief? Right. You know, yeah, so. Gross. So, yeah. so people come uh, to the town from all over the place to check out the crime scene, hotels, boarding houses, everything fills up. And then we get a list of suspects. Um, so if Sam Moyer, Lee Van Gilder. Yeah, right away they just Joe went looking for whoever. I mean, again, you got to remember they thought there was no connection to anything else. Yeah, and, right. And and to this day, there are still people who live in Villisca who still think that it was some, a some, some local crime. That yeah, exactly right. That yeah. you know it would just ignore the the all, everything, all the other evidence. Uh, because it's easier to believe that it could be a known than an unknown. Right. You know? I probably think we think talked about that already. They probably think Velisca is the center of the universe, well, too. Sure. And yeah, no, sure. So, yeah, but they, you know, immediately they went looking for people who were trying to find somebody who had a problem with J.B. Moore. Mm -hmm. uh, because that was the obvious answer. Just like it was in, in these other towns that we've talked about. Sure. You know, Lewis Cassaway. Well, it must be somebody who was mad at him for some reason. Yep. You know, and the same thing in Colorado Springs. You know, you know, maybe maybe Henry was sleeping with somebody. Maybe, you know, it's just yeah. you know, there it's, had to be a reason. We can't imagine why they would come in and kill all these kids. That was the big sticking point for everybody. Yeah. You know, I, I get it why you'd come in and kill this guy you were angry with, but why would you kill all these kids too? Mm -hmm. They must have really been mad. Well, it's all more you know. it's all more plausible than it's a serial killer traveling the railroad. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a path yeah. of least resistance sort it, of thing. If, in hindsight, yeah. it's easy for us to look back at it and go, oh, look, I can put all these pieces together. Right. If you were in the middle of it like these guys, Don't there's have that no luxury. possible way. No. No communication with any law enforcement outside of your immediate area. There's no way. Right. You know. Right. And so they brought in bloodhounds, pick up a trail, but no yeah. real luck. And I, I think I mentioned that being a popular crime solving technique at the time. Oh, the dogs. Every story I seem to write about involves bloodhounds. Bring in the it's hounds. Like, bring in the hounds. You know, and while I think there is some, I think that was an overrated technique. Mm -hmm. I think that that's 
I don't. For one thing, I don't think they're as well trained as, say, police dogs are now. Yeah. Uh, or bomb sniffing dogs, mm-hmm. or you know the ones they use at earthquake sites and stuff, looking for bodies. Yeah. Of a cadaver dogs. That's what I was looking for. Um, these were just you know old bloodhounds. Probably and they more bring fun them than out anything and else. <laughs> give them a smell of something, and let them chase it down. Yeah. You know, and then they'd be distracted by raccoons, and you know, but they'll pop up. They've already popped up. You know, in in. Um, and last our last episode in Monmouth, mm-hmm. and they'll be back. There'll, yep. be, there'll be more bloodhounds before this is all over. So. Oh, they're good dogs. Uh, <laughs> so the whole town is spooked. Frank Jones into putting himself on oh, the suspect God. list. Yeah, I think he would have ended up there anyway. Yeah, unfortunately, I think he would have ended up there anyway. But yeah, I think that that's what got it started. Was his, you know, like. <laughs> Can you believe this? Somebody actually thinks I have something to do with it, and the, whoever he told it to didn't laugh. Yeah, you know, and and so yeah, that was that was a mistake. Yep. Uh, but I think he would have ended up there anyway. Mm-hmm. As and you and as the story will continue to unravel yep. as the weeks go by, um, there's a there'll be a lot more. And after a while, there are a lot. And again. There are still people who, to this day, believe Frank Jones was somehow involved in the murders. Mm-hmm. And you'll understand why, as the story goes on, why it became so easy to believe. Yeah. You know? But it did for a lot of people. Yep. So the whole, once the uh, drama of all of it you know, kind of fades away during that day, then the sun goes down, it's dark, the whole town is finally <laughs> terrified. Although they did turn the lights back on. They turn the lights yeah. back on. Yeah. And that's where we'll pick up next time. Yes. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question about the world and the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first email comes to us from Catherine. This is a, a movie reference. She said we should check out Event Horizon, which I just oh, wanted to include yeah, it because it. I like the movie. Oh, I don't know. think it's 100% relevant, but I like uh, it. No. Yeah. Well, I think she was just going back to our previous discussions. Yes. So. Yes. So thank you for the suggestion. Well, you know, you could see people listen to this stuff. They all, don't, they're not, they're, not the everyone is waiting for the next episode to yes. come out. People find it at different times. Yeah. And I, I even messaged yeah. you about that the other day and I was yeah. like, we had X amount of listens today that are not any of the current stuff. Yeah. Like people are yeah. just finding it still. Yeah. So which is fine, it, which is great. If but you I'm have, sure that's where that came from. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah which I'm, is fine. But if you're going to ask me something about, uh, mm-hmm. St. Louis episode or something, I may be a little rusty on it. You never know. Yeah, so. no, that, I mean, that's totally fair, but yeah, send us, I mean, ask us questions about McPike sure. mansion, wherever you are. Yeah, I don't whatever. care. Yeah. Um, we definitely want to hear from you. So, uh, we, next email is from Rob and he said, as a major case detective and a paranormal investigator, I love the idea for this season. Looking forward to the episodes ahead. So thank you for that. Oh, that's, well, that was nice. That's I cool. I thought it was a question. Uh, no, it's just, Oh, a, they're not all questions. I'm question, sorry. I misunderstood comment. what the, I mean, I can turn it into it. No, I <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just, I misunderstood. Sorry, so. this is just it's ghostwriters. They can write questions, right? Can... I get it now. So yeah, it's, uh, the the show is a series of segments. Troy, okay, so uh, <laughs> okay, got it. The last email is from Ryan, and he just said, "Hey guys, want to thank you for putting out this podcast. I was recently turned on to it by my brother, and it's one of my favorites. You guys did a great job. Keep up the work." Thank you, Ryan. You, your brother, all cool. I, I want to highlight this because it's nice to hear positive feedback. <laughs> we 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 get a lot of positive feedback. I know. It's only we just like I to get. make fun of the ones that aren't. That's true. And so then I like to focus on them repeatedly. The negative ones, yeah. Over and over and over again because I find them funny. Yes. Because well, they're usually not really 
relevant. True. So I think there's sometimes there's a kernel of truth in there. Maybe that's yes. what we don't like. Yeah. Like that, that our that, my, di- uh, that our banter is cringeworthy, or that my jokes aren't funny. They're not. Right. Well, they're not. But that's that's know the that. point. Neither are mine. That's so. the point. Okay, well, I think that's it for this episode, and uh, we will be back in two weeks with another entry into uh, Murdered in Their Beds. So anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you again for um, sharing the podcast with your friends. Uh, We already heard from Sadi, whose brother shared it with him. Um, And thank you for sharing it with your friends, and thank you for leaving us reviews on iTunes and wherever else you're reviewing the podcast. Uh, We we really do appreciate it. it. It helps... It makes it easier for people to find the podcast if there's more reviews. I don't know how it all works. It's some kind of algorithm, which I'll never understand. Uh, But we do really appreciate it. So thank you for doing it. And we will see you next time around. Thanks. This episode of American Hauntings Podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. Check out our new episodes on your morning commute every other Tuesday to hear our latest bi-weekly. episode. Does that mean every other and week or every them. two weeks? Both. It's every two weeks. Or is it's that, it's is both. That the same thing. It can mean both, which yeah. is why English Just doesn't make any sense. Checking why it was Take a there. brand right. new look at Sorry. history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast to find new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books Let's and information about upcoming tours, events, improved. And haunted happenings. Much more inflection. Thank you. I've learned from the best. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your hosts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass have them along. Any jokes? I have one for you. Oh, okay. Can I tell you a ghost joke? Yes. That's the spirit. Okay. Until next time, oh, goodbye, oh, so man. long, see you later. You suck me in on that one. Got it. <laughs>